This is Untold, the Connecticut Mirror's news and culture podcast with three simple charges, challenge assumptions, seek understanding, leave nothing untold. I'm John Dankowski. And I'm Mercy Quay. Together we'll set out to find the through lines woven into Connecticut life to trace how each of us is more alike than our assumptions make us think. When we commit to following every thread to reach a deep understanding, it becomes clear that our differences and disagreements may be the result of the things we left untold. In this episode, the overdose crisis. The opioid epidemic has been devastating many communities for the last several years, and it was only exacerbated by the stress and isolation of the pandemic. That's on top of the influx of fentanyl that has truly led to an epidemic of overdoses. Coming up, Harriet Jones will take us to New London to find out how churches there are helping us in the effort to keep drug users safe. Many of us have had personal experiences in our life where it, was, it took somebody to say, hey, I can accept you the way you are. Mm-hmm. I can accept you um, with all of your, your screw-ups, with all of your, your insufficiencies. We accept you. And we'll invite Rushni Vereen into the studio to tell us about her work as an overdose response technician in Waterbury and just how difficult it can be to get help if you want to recover from drug use. You cannot get into detox for straight crack. You cannot get into detox for straight cocaine. I'm talking about overnight, medically um, monitored detox. But if it's fentanyl in your system or alcohol in your system, yes. So some people have to embellish, and I was one of them that had to embellish my use just to get in. That doesn't make a damn sense. That doesn't make sense. I know it, it doesn't make sense, but it happens. Untold is brought to you in part by Leadership Greater Hartford's webinar series, Leading in the New Now. It's designed to support community leaders who are navigating emerging and established trends, and it features some of the best leadership minds locally and nationally. Learn more at leadershipgh.org. Untold is also sponsored by UConn's School of Public Policy, a leader in public policy, public management, nonprofit management, and survey research education. As the opioid epidemic has grown and impacted people across the spectrum of race and class, we've seen at least a bit more acceptance that maybe our punitive approach to addiction has to change. One of the places we're starting to see that shift, maybe surprisingly, is in the judicial system. Torrington is one of several courts in Connecticut that's now trying to help people struggling with addiction instead of always turning straight to incarceration. I can tell you my whole story. I'll, I'll keep it brief. So, so prior to my recovery, I was I was struggling with heroin uh, and crack cocaine for about six years up until the age of thirty-five. I was actually contemplating suicide the day after Christmas, and you know, uh, kind of thinking about my family, obviously my children. Uh, it's not something that I would want to leave for them to suffer with uh, without a father. So I went into recovery. Uh, so we're going downstairs right here into uh, the bail office. Um. So my name is Frankie DeJesus, um, recovery coach with Treatment Pathways Program here at the Torrington Criminal Court. This is where Macy works, uh, who's our TPP clinician, um, who pretty much does all the interviews for our clients. Um. Okay, uh, I'm Macy Regan. Do you want me to say, like, my title? Yes. Okay, so I am the Treatment Pathways Program Lead Clinician for the Torrington and Waterbury Courts. We are a diversion away from jail. We get clients out on Promise to Appears. 
we get them seamlessly right into treatment that same day. I believe it started with court staff who were seeing this happening, seeing these people who had um, obviously an addiction problem and, and they were going to jail. And it was like, I think the consensus was, why they need treatment. So what what can we do? Being a person in recovery gives me the ability to utilize, you know, what I've gone through, um, not only in recovery, but prior to recovery. I can utilize my story, kind of give them a, a little, you know, kick in the butt to get them going, you know. That's kind of what I'm here for. I've only ever worked in, in pandemic. I started October of 2020. The biggest thing that I saw that was a problem for my end was treatment beds mm. reducing in size yep, because too. programs had to get smaller to be safer. Yep. Um, and so wait times got increased. We couldn't get people in as quickly as in the past. And then programs would also get shut down and then have to two-week quarantine. And that's a difficulty right now as we speak. You know, one of our clients was uh, literally discharged from a program. He's now currently you know, I mean, displaced and has COVID, we're trying to figure out exactly what we can do to help him get into another treatment facility. You know, once he's done quarantining. Yeah, whatever the protocol it's, it, is. There's, there's, some, there's some difficulty with that. I think that there's been a big influx of information. I think we are connected. We are finally speaking about addiction in the appropriate ways. Things like trauma, things like connection, things like harm reduction. That whole kind of narrative is shifting. And I, and I think COVID kind of helped that, honestly. People who maybe had never even experienced anxiety were getting a, a great big helping of it or maybe finally having the language to talk about it. Um, and so that's what makes me hopeful. You said you have some experience with opioid, with the opioid crisis? Yeah, I have people in my family and close friends of mine who have suffered from opioid abuse. I've known people who've died. I've seen the effect on families. Uh, I've covered this issue as a reporter for many years, and I've gotten a chance to hear from an awful lot of people, some close to me and some who I've just met in my work, whose lives have really been upended by by opioids. It's something that I think about an awful lot when someone tells me that they threw out their back and their doctor has prescribed very heavy pain medication. It makes me physically wince because I think, I, I hope that this is something that just takes care of their pain short term and is not something that causes a long-term problem for them. That is one of my assumptions going in whenever anybody asks me about the opioid epidemic. So when these individuals in your life were going through um, their issues with addiction, were you getting firsthand experience? Were you supporting them through it? Were you the sort of person that, right, they leaned on? Were you taking people to their hospital appointments? How for you did that impact you? Yeah, so so luckily I've never been in a position where I was the primary caregiver 
for for someone yeah. who who had to who had to go through through that. Um, I do know that it's one of the hardest things for people to do because no matter no matter how accepting you can be that addiction is a medical condition and not some failure in someone's moral character, right? No matter how much you you understand that, it's hard to watch. It's it's hard to live through. Um, it's hard not to, at a certain point, say, get your shit together, right? Yeah, and I mean, it's also only been a recent shift in mm-hmm. our society's psyche that we've been sort of allowing for it to be a disease. And by allowing, I mean recognizing and, you know, giving grace to the individuals who are impacted by it because we see it as a disease and not some sort of moral failing, right? Oftentimes, and, you know, specifically when there were drug crises hitting communities of color and and, uh, uh, poorer communities, we were looking at, at it as moral failings. Why can't you just stop? Right. These are, um, you know, the this is the underbelly of society. These are the uh, folks you actually want to get rid of. Right. The folks you don't want on the street. They regardless of how many times or how many chances you've given them, for some reason, they just can't get right. Yeah. I I, I will tell you one of the things that really it didn't turn around my thinking about this, but it really crystallized my thinking about this was was a story that I told as a reporter. This was years and years ago. But. You know, I was covering the city of Hartford, and there were, you know, for decades, huge problems with illegal drug sales in Hartford in which the fuel for that terrible fire, which resulted in drug deaths but also gun deaths and a lot of violence within the city, it was all fueled by suburban buyers coming into Hartford, coming into New Haven, coming into Bridgeport Mm -hmm. to buy drugs. And there were some local activists who had put together uh, a demonstration, and they met in the north end of Hartford, and they got on a bus, and I went with them as a reporter, and they drove out to Glastonbury, Connecticut. Mm. And the idea of, of these groups led by this pastor was, we are going to march down the street in Glastonbury, Connecticut, and say out loud, your kid is responsible for people getting shot in my neighborhood. So at the time, it felt like this very powerful narrative that that kind of stood things on its head a little bit and was trying to make very clear that the drug problems that we talk about in the inner city are really a result of all of society deciding that it's okay if we have drug sales in Hartford but we don't want to have them in, 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 in Glastonbury. But here's the thing, Mercy, as, as I think righteous and well-meaning as that was, it also skips past another important thing, which is that those kids who were buying the drugs in the suburbs were suffering from something that shouldn't have um, criminalized them anymore than the young people who are selling them the drugs, Mm -hmm. right? And I think that that's one of the complexities about this, is there are so many different levels that we think about about this. And as you say, that we've only recently 
started to understand about this problem. Yeah, and I think that that turn is necessary. I think one thing we have yet to work on with a particular amount of intention is an understanding that you actually just tapped into that our destinies are tied into each other somehow, Mm. right? And a part of that is because we, and I'll use the word scarcity again, we operate within a sense of scarcity, thinking that if you are able to get away with something, it means I can't get away with something. I'll use the word get away because of, you know, the uh, drug bust in Hartford. But it, but it also stands to be the case that if you are excused for something, mm-hmm. then it means that I can't be excused for something. We are fighting from, for airspace. And one of the assumptions that I bring to this conversation, um, you know, problematically so perhaps, is that this recent shift in society has left out so many in the conversation around, right, who is deserving of forgiveness when it comes to their addiction, mm-hmm. right? We're talking about decades um, and at least a generation of black and brown um, people and people in, living in poor neighborhoods who have been impacted by, you know, um, the crack epidemic um, happening in inner cities and certainly heroin, right? And What we thought about them at that time was that these are super predators. These are criminals on their own that need to be put away, right? And we didn't approach those issues with care. And I said crack and I said heroin, but I haven't talked about marijuana yet and how many people are still incarcerated in our system here in Connecticut based off of marijuana offenses, right? And so we have given a lot, a lot of grace to people who don't look like me, Mm -hmm. right? in lieu of giving grace more recently to people who look like you. Yeah, no, I think that that's absolutely right. I, I, I think that the, the conversation we've had at the state capitol, not just in Connecticut, but state capitals around the, around the nation about marijuana legalization over the course of the last couple of years has been fascinating because you know, to a certain extent, the biggest thing holding it up is the idea that if you are gonna legalize marijuana, you absolutely have to basically just let everyone out. Just let them out. Let, let everyone out who ever got put into jail for marijuana. And as soon as you say that, a lot of people go, Oh, well, why would we do such a thing? You let people out of jail. And I think that that is an enormous problem. I should ask you, Mercy, how about you? What is your personal experience with this issue? So I have very, very little experience with the opioid crisis. One of the things that I will say is I'll talk from my own experience being heavily prescribed any sort of either what I would call narcotic painkiller um, or uh, anxiety medication, right? Over the years, getting my wisdom teeth pulled, right? I had a two-month supply of Vicodin. Why does anyone need, your teeth are completely healed in three weeks. Why would I need another five weeks of painkillers for that? And and you were probably in your 20s or something. Yeah, it was very early on. It's very early on. You're going to heal super fast. Mm -hmm. It's it's not like an older person, right, having a a major surgery. This is, you're going to heal up pretty fast. And and even if I don't, we do not encourage people to experience light levels of pain, right? There is a certain amount of pain that we should get used to as a society if we want to avoid an overwhelming opioid crisis sweeping our nation later on down the line, right? And so um, that's one thing. Now, I'll say um, 
it for me is a bit of a, a, a privilege in a weird way, um, or at, at the very least, an advantage of insight mm-hmm. that my father was an alcoholic because I have a keen um, hesitance when it comes to overusing any substance. And that's why in this sort of situation, I followed the doctor's orders. But that's what got us into these situations. And that's the thing. Following following doctor's orders, one of the most insidious things about what has happened and what has come to light over the course of the last decade is that following doctor's orders essentially means that we have caused an, an opioid epidemic. Right. It has been shoved down our throats with a profit motive. Mm-hmm. And some of what we're going to hear in this episode really gets down to the the long-term ramifications of people's lives, of people's families, when things go awry because the system has essentially given you something in, a, in an amount that, that, that you shouldn't have. Um, all that said, all that said, a really important thing I, I try to bring to this is it's not about placing blame. Mm-hmm. And looking for the blame all the time, which is something us reporters like to do, mm-hmm. it's not that it's counterproductive, but it kind of misses the point, the larger point that we need to treat people in a medical way for a medical condition. And I think when we think about the word recovery, you said something just now that is sticking with me. Reporters don't think about issues in the terms of recovery. How can we improve? We just take the brass tacks of this situation. We look at the facts, we try to be objective, and we report them. Mm-hmm. I think the responsibility that we might now have is examining every situation with an eye for interrogation, right? If we can't trust what society has told us for you know a generation of drug use, then we need to work together to find and establish a path forward that means a better future for us all. Well, that's a good place to dive in. Let, I think let's, so. Let's get into it. You're listening to Untold, a Connecticut Mirror podcast. I'm John Dankoski. And I'm Mercy Clay. Hi, I'm Bruce Putterman, publisher of the Connecticut Mirror. Our public policy reporting strengthens democracy in two ways. It informs the public about its state government, and it acts as a watchdog to hold that government accountable. For 12 years now, members like you have participated in the work of the Connecticut Mirror through financial support. If you're already a Connecticut Mirror member, thank you. If you haven't yet joined in the work of the Connecticut Mirror, I encourage you to do so. After all, Our high-impact reporting is free to read, but it's not free to produce. Please go to ctmirror.org and click the red Donate button today. Thank you. We want to hear from you. You can email us at untold at ctmirror.org or engage with us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at ctmirror. Send us your untold stories. Record your voice for our next season. Let us know what's going on in your community. One of the biggest issues for many people who might want to be in recovery from substance use is stigma, the shame that people feel about their use and the fear they feel about being judged. 
Sometimes that judgment and lack of understanding comes from institutions in the community, like churches, where people might have gone to seek support. Harriet Jones has been visiting one church in New London that wants to change that paradigm. This was built in 1974, the second part, 2005. We put on a, put that whole addition on. This is Madry Temple Church in New London. This, this, Pastor this Jack Madry is showing me around. That was it. This is all we had. We had a huge choir before COVID. Then COVID hit and, uh, you know, people went their various ways. And uh, now we have, we have a phenomenal band that, that, that plays every Sunday. COVID definitely had a severe impact on because you lost a lot of the personality, the one-on-one connections. You lost uh, hugging, and you know my church was based on the principles hugging. We all felt that lack of physical connection in the last two years. It's no surprise that people we know and love have turned elsewhere for support. Drinking has gone up, self-medicating, so people are doing whatever they can to try to not allow, if you will, depression to overtake them. Madry Temple Church is one of 10 faith-based communities in New London County that are hosting a new harm reduction education program for their congregations. I call 911 first, 911 first. I'm gonna tell you real quick how we do this. If, you, if they don't wake up, I want to think twice to lay you down. Okay. But if you were sitting right there, I'd put your And that's why today, back. in the church basement, Pastor Jack now, is getting some pointers on how naloxone, the emergency overdose treatment, is used. On the ground. So that, that only works on Margaret Lancaster is an outreach worker and program coordinator for Ledgelight House District. She's also a member of this church. So we, these are the cards that we give out for families. Conversations about substance use disorder is very hard in, 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 in families. Margaret herself is in recovery for the last 17 years. She says that lived experience is really important in her work. You know, we're setting a table for some to come come to the table. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Come sit with us. Yeah. We're trying to reduce the harm for each individual by giving them an opportunity to empower them to make a choice for themselves on how they want to navigate their life. Harm reduction means just that. It does offer the opportunity for someone to get into treatment if they choose, but the first principle is they stay safe and alive, even if they keep using. When you receive individuals um, who have substance use disorder, you just have to just accept people where they are and, um, you know, and um, love them where they are and, um, and care about them where they are. Trainers from the National Harm Reduction Coalition will conduct the sessions with congregations. Margaret's colleague, Jen Mugio, says the outreach won't stop there. We're not just going to hold a two-hour Zoom workshop and walk away. This is going to be a partnership where we continue to help the communities who are ready to distribute naloxone kits and fentanyl test strips themselves help people uh, learn how to get connected to the resources. It's not Jack's first brush with this kind of community effort by a long shot. His experience stretches all the way back to the first wave of the AIDS crisis. Many of us have had personal experiences in our life where it, was, it took somebody to say, hey, I can accept you the way you are, mm-hmm. I can accept you um, with all of your, your screw-ups, with all of your, your insufficiencies. We, we accept you. And some people just want to hear that and say, well, someone's listening to me. They, not only am I accepted, but they're listening to me. That love and acceptance that Jack has been talking about, we've uh, come at this from a place of criminalization and prohibition Uh, We put them at risk because of the unstable supply. Unstable supply. 
When we first started paying attention to the impact of opioids, doctors were restricted from doling out pills, which you'd think would be a good thing. But Jen says that only turned an opioid crisis into an overdose crisis. Our policy responses in the beginning of this epidemic focused on restricting access to pharmaceutical opioids, created a vacuum for the narco-traffickers to step into and flood our communities with fentanyl. There's also been more talk in recent years about substance use as a public health emergency, but not everyone gets included in that conversation. The extension of that grace, the extension of that understanding, the extension of that compassion, uh, you know, still again in this go-round does not extend in the same way to communities of color as it extends to white people. You're going to be judged and everything, but to come see me, at my desk, out there, you come as you are. Our car. <laughs> you know what I mean? We've been known to carry socks in our trunks. Margaret's meeting with her fellow outreach workers, Donnie Rose and Trisha Rios. They're peer navigators for the Alliance for Living here in New London. Everything in the back of the trunk, is, you might just see someone, they wave you down, you're like, what? And, um, and you just pull right over and you're like, so what is, what's going on? I just need socks Where today. Where you parked at? <laughs> We're not counselors, we're not therapists, we're not doctors, we're who we are. Mm-hmm. And that takes a lot of pressure off of other people. Like, you don't have to be nobody but yourself. Mm-hmm. You don't have to change how you talk. Mm-hmm. If you cuss a little bit, it's okay, I do too. This isn't a cookie-cutter job. Like, it, I don't think there should be a cookie-cutter recovery process for everybody. Trisha says she's seen every day of the past two years what the impact of a pandemic has meant for people already struggling with substance use disorder. I didn't realize it until during COVID, the trust, how important trust is in the community, right? Especially communities of color when it came to the vaccination, getting tested, COVID itself, never mind our our main job, which is substance use. Now we're doing um, substance use and we're doing COVID testing and educating. And I didn't realize then until how my experience was in, in the trust that I have in my community has really been able to be challenged during COVID. And now, as restrictions are lifted, there's a call to return to normal. I mean, like, yeah, they've gotten, like, the vaccines, the boosters, that's great, that's amazing. But we haven't even started healing from Mm -hmm. the beginning. Like, there's so much PTSD, trauma. So I don't feel like we're even at the tip of dealing with it or recovering from it. I think we have a long way to go, and a lot of people are traumatized by this. You're listening to Untold, a Connecticut Mirror podcast. I'm John Dankosky. And I'm Mercy Quay. Rusty, thanks for coming in. Thanks for having me. Um, why don't you give me, give me your name and give me your title. What, tell me what you do. So my name is Rushni Vereen. My current title um, is Overdose Response Technician 1 for the city of Waterbury. However, I'm a uh, recovery coach and a recovery support specialist. So... Why do you do this work? Well, because in my own recovery journey, I I feel like I've made it out on the other side of it. I do feel like it is my responsibility to pay it forward. Um, I enjoy serving my community um, and also keeping my community safe. 
uh, and also using my voice. I'm, I'm very passionate about this field and I'm an advocate. Roshni, I'm, I'm interested because I think that so much of our um, conversation when it comes to the opioid crisis has been focused on the people we think deserve resources, right? Uh, and historically, the people that we think deserve resources have been wealthy, have been white, and black and brown or low-income people have been left out of the conversation. One of the things I always say is um, substance use disorder, it knows no race, it knows no income levels, all it does is kill and destroy. Um, as an African-American woman, I think, or I believe, that um, coming up, these are things that were seen but never discussed. I think uh, African-Americans culturally um, struggle with opening up and letting others in um, to even take services or even acknowledge that there's an issue. Um, I find that, I look at within my own family, there's substance use on both sides. Um, and I look at it, it was just the norm. This is what my grandmother did. She drank mm -hmm. till she got drunk. Um, it was never discussed. That's who, that's grandma is. You, that's, she's our matriarch. That's what happens. But what I can say is through me and my own struggle with addiction is when those conversations finally begin to happen. Here I was, this educated woman. I felt like I was on top of my A game, you know, making a great living, beautiful family, and became addicted to the medications I was placed on. Mine started well, with a workers' comp injury. Um, I was a social worker. I was dropping off a bus pass. Came, uh, was on the second floor, a dark hallway, came down some steps. Um, and the, the pain, I can't even describe the pain to you. We didn't know what was going on. You're fighting this extreme pain and you're trying to figure out what is going on within your body. All right. And you're being placed on this med and that med. And then you have to fight workers comp to finally get the MRI. And in 2011 is when it was decided, let's put her on Percocet. So, um, I was on it for years. I was on it for years. I would get 30 day prescriptions and then I began to get used to the euphoric feeling. Um, it started where I would, you know, take extra on the weekend. And then one day I decided to mix it with some alcohol and, oh, this feels great. Um, and that's, uh, that's kind of how it snowballed with mm -hmm. me. Um, and I dealt with the stigma and shame for a long time. So what I do now, Mercy, is I use my voice mm -hmm. and I use my personal story to encourage, motivate, and empower. I will say with some of the most recent stuff that has happened in Hartford with um, the young man overdosing and dying, um, parents are scared. Now people are reaching out and it's black, it's brown, it's white. We are doing Narcan trainings left and right, mm. left and right. People want to know now. So it's unfortunate that it takes tragedy of such a young person, but sometimes that's how change comes about, through tra tragedy. Mm. So I'm, I, I listen to podcasts. I'm an avid podcast listener. And uh, most recently I'm listening to Stuff You Should Know. And the advertisement that came up for me was – uh, we can stop the Connecticut opioid crisis. And it gives a couple tips. The tip it sounds to me like it is missing the point. And I'll tell you what, you what are the ones that they said. As a tip, it said, 
protect, hide your medicine from uh, young people. Sure, that makes sense, right? But hide your medicine from uh, strangers. And I think it sometimes, when I heard that, it struck me because it's not this faceless, you know, uh, no-name individual who becomes addicted to opioids. It's the people who were prescribed the drugs in the first place who become dependent upon it. Does that sound familiar? Am I right on that? Oh, you're you're dead smack right on that. I am one of those. You know, I wasn't sat down and I wasn't told that I'm placing you on a very powerful narcotic. You run the risk of becoming addicted within the first four to six weeks. You can become chemically addicted. But those were important points that uh, was brought up in what you heard. But there's so much more to it um, because there's so many different ways people come um, to become addicted. I'm going to give you a good example. Grandma may have had knee surgery. Grandma may have not taken on her medication. A kid gets into it. Mm-hmm. Kid brings it to school. Why don't you try this? Tons of stories like this. That's one way that they become addicted. Another way, peer pressure, whether it's on on the level of a child or an adult. A lot of people sometimes are looking for a way of escape to feel good. So there's so many different ways. Mm -hmm. Some people want to use the drug as just a coping mechanism because they just don't want to deal with life. Mm -hmm. Life is tough, especially today. There are many pathways to addiction. Mm. How much of this problem do you think is is a holistic issue of the medical community over prescribing and just putting too many opioids too many painkillers into our overall system that was a huge part of it i mean Unfortunately, there were many medical providers. They weren't looking at how it was impacting folks and killing folks and things like that. They were just prescribing and over-prescribing and over-prescribing. Um, so, yes, it, a lot of it did start um, in the, med- the, the medical, with the medical community. But I think the big monster right now is fentanyl. Yeah. Because it's, it, it's killing people. Now, if you look at some of substances back in the day, it wasn't killing people like this. It just wasn't killing people this way. Mm-hmm. Um, fentanyl is much more potent and powerful than heroin. Well, and, and tell us what you see with fentanyl, too, because fentanyl we've seen connected to um, products that people think are going to be one thing, and they turn out being fentanyl. But you've also talked openly about the fact that, that people are seeking out fentanyl because they know that it is a very specific type of high and it's the most powerful drug you can get and so people are looking for it. So say more about fentanyl and what it means right now in in your world. Okay, so before I delve deep into that, I wanna give paint sort of a little Picasso for you. So we'll use me. Um, I was getting prescribed medications and then I was abruptly taken off. Um, I'm already addicted, I need this high. What is my next option? Cheap heroin on, a sh- on the street. You can get it $5, you know, um, a pack or a bundle, okay? And that typically has been what has happened to individuals who abused opioids and benzos. They then went to heroin or 
going to a lot of the bodegas or people that are selling to buy pills, okay? We have, I'm going to say wannabe pharmacists or wannabe chemists making their own pressed pill, adding mm. any and everything to it. Nothing's being measured. And this stuff is too potent and too powerful. So that's what we're seeing right now with fentanyl. These are not prescribed levels, um, you know, given by a doctor. I'll, I'll respond to an overdose. I go to the hospital. The individual will say, I did a half a line of coke and I woke up in the hospital. I did a half a line of crack. I'm in the hospital. I had one where a couple of gentlemen passed and only thing that was found was marijuana and it has been shown in marijuana. So part of the problem is a person can think they're going to buy one thing. Mm -hmm. Oh, I'm going to buy crack and there's fentanyl in it. Mm -hmm. And I hear this often. Well, I trust my dealer. Please don't. People also forget that heroin is a maintenance drug. It's not your go get hot, let, let's party drug. That's cocaine and crack. So these things do different things for people, okay? I can tell you for me, I just didn't want to have withdrawals. I just didn't want to feel like I had the flu. Unfortunately, they're getting fentanyl, almost pure fentanyl, which is much more potent than heroin. So when we introduce harm reduction, we talk about fentanyl testing strips, which is what I hand out, okay? For people who are looking for hero, I mean fentanyl or not looking for fentanyl. If you find fentanyl in it, because we give it with instructions, use less of it. Please use the buddy system. Use with someone else because God forbid you overdose. You cannot Narcan yourself. So if you're going to continue to use, who am I to tell you to use or not to use? But let me help you be safe about it. Let me tell you where your local syringe exchange program is. Mm -hmm. Let me tell you how you can safely dispose of your sharps so we don't have a child on the playground playing, accidentally gets poked, um, and is exposed to God knows what. So what I love about this uh, conversation and the, the approach that you're taking in Waterbury is it says, this is what's happening today. And regardless of what I think tomorrow should be, how do I you know, help you dispose so you're not, um, you know, uh, inadvertently dangering uh, the, you know, children at the playground that you decided to discard your items at. And it talks about looking at the problem as it is and not ignoring it. Looking at the problem as it actually is right now. Mm -hmm. Do you think that we do enough of that? That, that Do you think people get like this reality that you're painting right now? Because Mercy says it quite right. You know, like there seems like there's a formula that you have for this is going to work. Do you feel like you have support to do it? <laughs> You're going to hear me say this often. We're turning the corner. So it, it's in our face. We know what it is. A lot of people don't like harm reduction. They, they're like, are you crazy? You're, you're encouraging them to use. No, we're not encouraging them to use. But what people don't understand is that recovery is a very selfish process. Mm -mm. You can't force recovery. It's about meeting a person where they're at. If you are at a place where you're just not ready, you're not at, at any of the five stages of change, pre-contemplation, contemplation, but this is where you are, then at least let me help you be safe. And I ask hard questions. Are you trying to kill yourself? Because I do believe there is a such thing as suicide by overdose. Sure. Unless they leave a note, we will never know. Yeah. You know. So, um, and I've had those that say, I don't care. 
you know, and they want the stuff that's out there killing people. And I know that's crazy for people to believe, but when people hear of the, the fentanyl that's out there that, oh, and they kill, they, that's what they want. You know, a lot of people don't understand it. But for them, they need it, they want it, and if it means they die as a result of it, they mm-hmm. die. And some people are just there. So let me just meet you where you're at. Here's some fentanyl testing strips. Here's some Narcan. Waterbury last year saw numbers, death, death, go down. So in addition to equipping the individual who's abusing the substance, I also equip families. I am the type that'll pick up that phone and reach out to a family member and say, listen, could you use some Narcan? Can I drop some Narcan off to you? I'm one that prides myself on making resource packets. These are all the different things available to you. So I also educate the families. I do my best. When you educate the families, do you still hear from families, though, that say, this is a choice. Like, I I can't do anything about the fact that grandma or my son decided to do this. Do, Do you hear an awful lot from people that don't fundamentally understand how addiction works and thinks, well, this is happening because someone's just making bad decisions and deciding to yes. to shoot up, deciding to take pills. Yes. All yes. the time. And feeling like you're enabling them yep. by giving them these care I packages. Hear it, I hear it all the time. And uh, working to reduce stigma around this, educate on how some of this stuff works. Some people just are going to believe what they're going to believe. But I, I hear that often. I try to support them, meet them where they're at. Nope, I can't change what they think. But then I have the flip side of it as well, where the parents blame themselves. Or the parent will go buy the drug for them because they're so afraid that their child's going to go out and use and die. They're ashamed. They're embarrassed. However, they prefer that their child be in their home using and not out on the street somewhere. Um, I see so many different dynamics. So Mm. all I can do as one person in this field is continue to educate and continue to advocate. You know, there were many people who thought using a person with lived experience in this field, it was shot down immediately. Before we started seeing all of these recovery coaches and recovery support specialists and partnering up with uh, uh, police, police ambulance and working together as a partnership, it was being shot down left and right. So I just, that's why you, you'll hear me say we're turning the corner. Do you, Mer- mm. Mercy, don't you think it's interesting that in all the conversations we've been having so far with people on these, on these topics, uh, it, it keeps coming up, right? There's an obvious solution, which is have people who have the most lived experience directly help those who are in need. And it, it seems right. like at every turn it's an uphill battle. Like no one wants to believe that that's the only way this is going to work. And there's a there's a sort of light bulb that goes off. It's like obviously have people with lived experience be a part of this conversation, be a part of the solution. Really, mm-hmm. um, this is a recurring theme that we're hearing, Rushni, over and over and over. And uh, John, can I do something uh, that we did in the education episode? Yeah, yeah. Right, like just each of our own lived experience in this. Um, you you can you can jump in if you'd like, John. I'm not trying to put you on the spot. I know that the streets of Winstead are real hard out there, so I'm not trying to put you on the spot. But Rushni, you talked about anxiety and depression, 
And we're in a pandemic Mm -hmm. where we don't just have an opioid crisis, right? We also have a mental health crisis where people, like you said, can't be, can't perhaps go to their, you know, psychiatrist or, you know, telehealth isn't working the way that they thought it might help. They can't go with their communities. And so anxiety, depression, and you brought up benzos, right? And September 10th, I started getting these heart palpitations on September 10th of last year. And so I go and I'm like, yeah, I don't know what's going on. I'm getting palpitations and they were flattening me. And so uh, my physician prescribed Xanax and was like, but you really want to take it easy. No more than quote four to five a week. Mm. <laughs> and we're talking about Xanax is a benzo, right? And so in three weeks, if I skipped two days in a row, I started getting hot flashes down my neck and shoulders, right? And so I sometimes make this joke with, with you know, mostly just my husband, not out and to other people. I'm like, wow, remember that time I got addicted to benzos? Because that's what your, bo- your body at this point is saying, you have a chemical that was in you and it's leaving. And in order to function, in order to not feel bad, you need to replace that and replenish that chemical. Tell me about you know, the sort of things that we're seeing with benzos, because we talked about the opioid side, but I'd love to know more about the benzos. So I'm not, a, I'm, I can speak from my own personal experience with benzos. So my um, experience with benzos started with my own anxiety because I have co-occurring disorders um, and being placed on lorazepam. Um, a very small amount of lorazepam. Now you have uppers and you have downers. Benzos are downers. Benzos are the things that will relax folks, sleep. A lot of people like that feeling. I was one of them that liked that feeling. Unfortunately, when you um, start messing around with benzos, you can lose your life. You can lose your life Mm -hmm. if just abruptly stopped. Um, And I do feel like it's important for doctors to really talk to people about this, especially when you start mixing that stuff with alcohol, which will give you a whole... Benzos and alcohol. Will give you a whole different effect. And then me, benzos, alcohol, and perks. Wow. Okay? Um, I'm shocked that I'm able to sit here and talk to you guys today. But um, I was one of those people. And benzos are extremely addictive and hard to come off of it. If a person abruptly stops something like Xanax, individuals can go into seizures. And possibly mm-hmm. die. Then they go to the next best thing. Let me buy it off the street. Zanny bars. I was popping those. Zanny bars. Yeah, Xanax. So they're Xanax, but they come in a bar form. And they're much more potent than a lorazepam. They're all in the same class, but they're like, I don't know how to, the milligrams are much more powerful and stuff like that. And I love those things. Because it took me away from my misery. Can we go back to bars? Are we talking about something that's like a... Like a chocolate bar? All like right, a, so like a little mini bar. Uh, it's a pill, but it's a it's shaped like a little rectangle bar. Oh, interesting. Yeah, okay. yeah. And it has the scores where you can break it off. Um, and so people would get those prescribed, but then you have people out on the street making them, pressing them. That feels like it game of, I mean, John, does that feel like it gamifies taking Xanax Whoa. if it's in a bar form and you can... You can like break it off like a Kit Kat. You can you can break exactly yeah. exactly that. Think of a little tiny mini Kit Kat bar. They call them Zanny bars. So well, one of the things, and uh, boy, I have, I have heard this from people I've talked to on the radio over the years, but I've also heard this from people in my own family mm-hmm. and people that I know and I love who have struggled with addiction for a long time. Mm-hmm. 
you, you just said something that that everyone always says at some point, which is, "I love those things." Mm-hmm. Like th- it's not it's it's not like, "Oh my God, this this terrible thing that I I wish I'd never put on my body." No, you actually have a a a memory mm-hmm. of saying, "Yeah, this was great <laughs> at the time." Sorry, I need to laugh about no, it. No, but no, no. Yeah. But, but 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 it's but it's it's funny. It's like, holy shit, th- this was great. And it almost killed me. It could have killed me. It's killing people right now. But that's something that people like fundamentally don't understand about this stuff. It's that it's that there is a moment in which it's not just that I need this. Mm -hmm. It's that I love this. Mm -hmm. Part of the problem is this. A person in recovery relapses a part of it. Also, if a person does not have a strong support system and a strong coping mechanism set up, Mm And then they go back into the community they're so used to getting it from. That's going to be difficult. Mm-hmm. A lot of people can't do what Russiany did. I don't expect people to do what Russiany did. You know, I had to make a lot of hard choices, and I let a lot of things go, including my home, just to help save wow. my life. When you say you're, you're, wow. your home, you moved out of your hometown. I, my, I let it go on foreclosure because yeah. me and all the women in my neighborhood were getting high together off pills. A lot of people don't can't do that. They can't just get a new phone number or block right block you know the dealer's number the person you were buying your pills from you know they can't do that um for me the willpower was there and so i always mm-hmm. i always talk about um what will you do to face your triggers so that was my pathway but my pathway doesn't work for everybody my pathway was also medically assisted treatment which was suboxone some people like suboxone some people don't and there's all types of other medically assisted treatment there's methadone there's Vivitrol. There's other stuff that's out there that I don't even know about. So this was Rushney's pathway, but other people's pathway is completely different. But, but it's, a, it's a hard pathway. I mean, you know, methadone, it requires you to commit yes. to a regular treatment, and that's not easy for everybody. I mean, you it's guys, you got to work around it. you got to take care of your kids around it. you yep. got to be able to get to the place. Yeah. And maybe you don't have a, a driver's license. Maybe it's hard to get to on the bus. In exactly. the wintertime, it sucks to get across town. Mm-hmm. It's really hard to stay on, say, methadone mm-hmm. treatment for a long enough time to have the effect that you need. Right. What are your coping me- mechanisms? John, right, like you do yoga. I'm only recently getting into yoga, and we all handle stress mm-hmm. in different ways. What we have access to changes how we might interact with our own stress, right? Right. I have access to therapy, right? I have access to, um, I can run, I have have parks, I have green spaces. There's a geography question here too. And what do you have access to in your city, in your town? Absolutely. Let's talk about Waterbury. Waterbury is the go-to place. I can't tell you how many Mm -hmm. people we see that overdose on Waterbury, but they're not from Waterbury. They're usually, a lot of times they're out of towners or they're out of staters, okay? Um, whatever they're offering and the stuff that they're selling, it's powerful and it's potent. The concern I have, and I love Waterbury and I love serving the Waterbury community, we are loaded with resources. Mm-hmm. But the the problem is right there in your face. So you can go to this treatment program and come right back out in the bodega across the street and selling it. Wow. Are you strong enough to get on the bus and go home? Or are you going to see your friend across the street who invites you over? Hey, I just got this. Let's go do this. This conversation for me feels as though there is this sense of there's still so much left to be surprised about here. Yeah. And there's so many other barriers. Okay, I'm going to give you an example. Yeah. 
I run into individuals who are treatment ready. Yeah. They're in active withdrawal, chills, diarrhea. They feel like they have the worst flu in the world, okay? They're trying to collect their thoughts. Some of them don't even know how to advocate for themselves or formulate mm -hmm. a, a sentence, okay? They want a detox bed. I call the access line. There's no bed available. Access line tells you, call back in a few hours. We'll see. If there is a bed, you tell them let's, you got to sit there for two hours and wait. Because if you're telling this person who's in active withdrawal to come back the next day, we, we, a lot of times we lose them. They walk right out. That just happened to me recently. Mm -hmm. And I'm just giving you examples of the challenges in this field. The whole, did you get that COVID vaccinated? So many hoops to jump through just to get the detox. They can't do it. They can't do it. Are people are being turned away because they're not vaccinated? So, okay, depending on the program, okay, because remember, we got tons of agencies. When you're on and you're, when you're being assessed for an intake, there are certain questions. One of the ones I run into is say there's a person who has a heart condition, but this is a person who's poor, homeless, living out on the street, no phone, which is most of the people I deal with. They're not on their meds. They're not taking their stuff consistently. Well, that's going to serve as a barrier because you have a heart condition. So how do we put you in detox and put you on this and put you on that when, you know, these people can't tell you the last time they had a physical? And that's why I say there's so many dynamics to this. Liability issues come into play. You cannot take a person who has a serious medical condition who is also battling an addiction and just put them on a MAT, a medically assisted treatment, because you could kill them. So, mm. yes, liability comes into place. Now we have all of these measures for COVID. How many times I get asked, was I, I just got asked if I was COVID vaccinated downstairs. So imagine I'm trying to get into detox and they're asking me, were you vaccinated? And I'm someone who's homeless, no phone, don't take care of my health, no dental, no this, no that. I'm too high and zonked out for me to tell you when the last time I had a physical. This is the stuff I deal with daily. Mm -hmm. And when I do finally find someone who's ready, they're past pre-contemplation, they're past contemplation, they're like, I got an issue, I want to deal with it. There's still other barriers. Everyone's, it's not a cookie cutter case. But, but if you're trying to solve the problem, which, which we're trying to do here right now, you'd say, no matter what, you've got to be able to meet those people when they're ready at that time regardless of all these other things, regardless of their medical history, regardless of the, whether or not they're uh, COVID vaccinated, at that moment when they're ready, we have to, as a society, somehow find a way to get them treatment. But so for me, I'm going to tell you what yeah. I think is part of the solution, and it's going to cost millions. Detox right there on scene, on site. One spot you can walk into, doctors, nurses, clinicians, psychiatrists, everyone's there on board whether you're vaccinated or not, they, they can treat whatever the issue is and get you to that next step. If mm -hmm. it means it's okay to put you on Suboxone for the day, get you comfortable, get you out of withdrawal mode, I'd love to see that. We don't have a just a walk-in facility like that. And it's frustrating. It sounds like an intake process to disqualify people as opposed to qualifying them, right? Like you haven't been vaccinated, you haven't had a physical. All right, well, these are, instead of it being a, okay, well, this is where we're starting. It sounds like, all right, well, that's it. You can't do it then. I will say, depending on the facility. And the other thing, and I don't even think I mentioned, 
detox you cannot get into detox for straight crack you cannot get into detox for straight cocaine and some of this other stuff i'm talking about an overnight detox you can get into de detox for benzos you can get in for anything opioid related and alcohol that's it so some people have to embellish and i was one of them that had to embellish my use just to get in and get the service that doesn't make a damn bit of sense I, that doesn't make any sense I know it doesn't make sense, but it happens. You have to embellish. What was it? Do you know? And you might not know this, but you know, what's the logic behind that? I'm talking about overnight medically monitored detox for straight crack cocaine. No, but if it's fentanyl in your system or alcohol in your system, yes, you can die from alcohol. You can die from opioids, the benzos as well. It's always been that way. I guarantee you go ask any other substance abuse specialist. They're going to tell you the exact same thing. You know, if a person comes in and say oh it's just crack i use or do you use anything else or you know are you gonna go have a nip so you can actually go into detail i'm being honest with you oh wow it's it, it, it it's it sounds as though the facilities that in your mind you're designing the things that we you wish we had more of it would take you said millions it would maybe take it would take billions yeah well i'll, I'll say i mean i'll say this and you you know you said this earlier city of Waterbury got some money from big settlement the Sackler family has billions of dollars, mm -hmm. billions yep. and billions of dollars that we didn't get from them. Would more money at this problem solve this problem? Yes. I would love it where they can literally go and be assessed. And even if it meant they got them on this track or that track, I wish in an ideal yeah. world that's what we had. I, I, I hope for that world. Um, I'm really glad that you are in this world to doing what you're doing. Thank you for doing the work that you do. Thank you. I really appreciate it. I laugh because I get so passionate when I start talking about certain things. Oh, my God. It's a daily battle. I can't tell you how much I just appreciate the work that you're doing, the journey that you have gone through to get to this place. And, I, I mean, I just can't thank you enough for speaking to our listeners about the 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 terrors and traumas that are associated with this kind of process yeah but uh this is this is this is the work i was called to do rushni thank you you're welcome this is untold a connecticut mirror podcast you can go to connecticutmirror.org slash untold for bonus content and photos from this episode Look us up on social, drop us an email, and don't forget to send us your untold stories and tell us what's going on in your community. And if you like what you've heard, you can leave us a review and share this episode with a friend who would love it too. Our reporter for this episode was Harriet Jones. Our music is composed and produced by Mark Lyon. Graphic design for Untold by Jordana Hertz. Our intern is Grace McFadden. We have digital support by Kyle Constable. Untold is produced and edited by Harriet Jones. Thanks to the Connecticut Mirror's executive editor, Elizabeth Hamilton, and publisher, Bruce Putterman.